Amen. You know, the one thing better than one Easter service, you know what I want to say? Two Easter services. I have to admit, I was, I was a little worried uh, for this second service because I was not expecting that many people to actually listen to me. When I encouraged the regulars to come to the first service, there was kind of this implied message of, but some of y'all come to the 1030 as well, and y'all got that. So thank you for being here for this service. Uh, we had a wonderful first service, and, and it's just been equally as, as awesome, this service here. Many of you probably don't know this about me, but uh, growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. I remember watching uh, court shows when I was little. I used to watch the old uh, reruns of Perry Mason when I went to go stay with my uh, grandmother. And uh, I used to, in college, I was addicted to any and every type of criminal justice programming. And I used to watch hours upon hours of live trial coverage on court TV back when that was a station. I loved it. Anybody here with me on this? All right, Bill. I, I don't have Brett in here. Brett raised his hand. Those of y'all know, Brett's a lawyer, so of course he's interested in those as well. And for many of you who, who like watching these types of shows like Dateline, American Justice, and 48 Hours, you know that, that during a, a trial, a criminal trial, to find a person guilty in a court of law, you have to have quite a bit of what is called direct evidence. You have to have quite a bit of that even to go to trial, right? Direct evidence is tangible, real, and clear proof of a crime. It's something that requires little to no thinking whatsoever to prove its existence. Many of you know who have watched shows like Dateline and American Justice, you know that if you have large amounts of indisputable, tangible, clear evidence of a crime, chances are good that the prosecution is going to win. Chances are good that the defendant is going to be found guilty. Now, it doesn't always happen, but a lot of the time, it does. And of all the, the damaging types of direct evidence given in a court case, few are more convincing to the jury and more damaging to the defense than expert statements and eyewitness testimonies, especially if there are more than one. If in a case, the prosecution calls for a couple of testimonies from forensic experts and then on top of that they have two maybe even three eyewitnesses they have a solid chance of winning especially if their witnesses are intelligent competent sound in mind and ethical you have your bibles turn to first corinthians 15 thought for this sunday for resurrection sunday there's not a better chapter that we can study on the resurrection than 1 Corinthians 15. This is considered by many to be the best chapter on the resurrection in the entire Bible, and I agree. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to cover this entire book of, or this entire chapter in this book of 
58 verses, and I'm sure you're thankful for that. But we are going to get through the first 11 this morning. And in this passage, Paul is going to provide for us as solid a defense as you're going to find for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's going to make a defense on direct grounds using direct evidence that this event occurred. So let's take some time this morning to examine this evidence that Paul gives us here for Jesus' resurrection. First, you have this. Evidence number one, the testimony of the church. Look at verses one and two. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. Here Paul is calling for the Christians at Corinth to remember the message that he preached to them when he was first with them and starting this ministry there. He's calling for them to remember how they responded to that message and how they're still responding to it to this very day. In verse 1, Paul says, When I first preached, you received my message. And you believed on the Lord Jesus. You took a stand for Christ. You received it. You believed it. And you're still standing on this truth to this very day. He says, when I first preached this message to you, you took your first step of faith. And you're still living by faith to this very day. That's what Paul means, by the way, when he says being saved in verse 2. He's addressing the the present salvation of sanctification. That's what he's talking about there. He says, there was a time when you trusted in Christ for your salvation, and you are still trusting in him today. You are following him to this day, to to the day that Paul wrote this letter. They were still following faithfully. Here, folks, we have the first piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection, the existence of this Corinthian church. Now, we don't often think about this when we think about the evidence for the resurrection here, do we? We don't often think about the fact that the church gives strong evidence for the resurrection. But folks, it's true. And believers, what was true of the Christians at Corinth 20 years after Jesus' resurrection is especially true of us today, 2,000 years after. If you're here this morning and you are saved, that one time you took a stand for Christ and you are currently standing for Him today, if at one time you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus and you are living by faith on a daily basis, if you are here and Christ is living in and through you, that is proof that Jesus lives. Did you know that? Church, you are living proof of the resurrection. Now, some skeptics will hear that, and they'll argue this point, and they'll say, okay, but what about those who are not? There are many in churches today whose lives aren't any different from those out there. What about those people? What about those who 
at one time, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, but have never made strides spiritually. What about those who are no closer to Jesus today than when they first made a decision, yet they're in church Sunday after Sunday? Some will say, hey, for every sold-out believer you can name, I can name you two who are not. What do you do about that? Is that proof that Christ is not alive? If they're not living the resurrected life, if they're not walking in newness of life, does that disprove the resurrection? Well, Paul answers it for us here in verse 2. Look at what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, verse 2, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Wow. Notice what Paul's saying here at the end of verse 2. This is so important. Paul is saying here that it is possible to believe in vain. This is what some call counterfeit faith. Paul is saying here that there are some who have superficial counterfeit faith, the faith of demons. Because remember, even they believe but are not saved. Am I right? Now, some don't like to talk about this. This concerns some people. There's nothing I can do about it. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. It's what you find throughout the scriptures. You can't get away from this in scripture. Paul says in Colossians 1.22, listen to this. Mark it down, Colossians 1.22, he says, He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. That's strange, isn't it? Continue in the faith? What's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about working for our salvation? Is he talking about works-based salvation? No, he's making the point that continuing in the faith is evidence of real and genuine conversion. In other words, one who is saved lives for the Lord and grows in godliness. Imagine this. Followers of Christ follow Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's a point they make over and over again. Now, do we mess up? Of course. Do at times, do we fall flat on our face spiritually? Yes. But you know what Scripture teaches? Scripture teaches that God's people are those types of people who keep trusting, keep following. God's people endure. God's people, they persevere. This is the point that's being made here. We can make this point from the end of verse 2 and elsewhere. And so... To answer the skeptics, we'd say, no, this doesn't disprove Jesus' resurrection. But if you don't persevere, if you're no more like Jesus today than when you first prayed a prayer walking aisle, that, that doesn't disprove the resurrection. That may simply prove that your faith is not genuine. That's what Paul's saying. So if you're here this morning and you're no more mature than when you first made a decision for the Lord 10 to 20 years ago, that's a problem. You don't need to be questioning the resurrection, but whether or not you're right with God. That's why we have warning passages like this in the scriptures and elsewhere. 
But the main point is this. The main point I'm trying to make is this. If your faith is saving faith, then you will persevere. And if you persevere and grow in godliness, that is proof, folks, of Christ's resurrection. Church, there's a simple application to be made here by us, and it's this. If a life lived for Christ, if a life lived for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit is proof of Jesus' resurrection, get this, then live in such a way to show forth that truth. Believers, my prayer for us, for this church, is that people would see Christ in us. My prayer is that as the unbelieving and watching world examines our lives, as they look at us here, they would conclude Christ must be alive and he must be Lord because look at the evidence. Look at Fellowship Bible Church. Look at how those people trust Christ. Look at how they follow him. Look at how they endure. Look at how they persevere. Christ must be alive and he must be Lord because Fellowship Bible Church exists. Believers, I'm convinced that you have the potential to be the best evidence people have today for Christ's resurrection. I'm convinced that the the best evidence people have today for his resurrection is by witnessing you walk in newness of life. Therefore, do it. Pursue godliness. Walk worthy for him work out what the spirit is working within you walk in newness of life put off the old man and put on the new live your life in such a way to show forth this truth of christ's resurrection there's more evidence paul gives for jesus's resurrection notice he also mentions not only the testimony of the church but the testimony of scripture look at verses three and four For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These verses, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth once again of the gospel he preached to them when he was first with them, that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised up on the third day. That's the message Paul preached when he was with them. That's the message they received. That's the message they believed. That's the message they were standing upon. Paul says, I delivered this message when I was with you. I delivered it to you first class, priority mail of first importance. I was with you preaching this message to you. Why? Why was this Paul's message? Because these truths are at the heart of the gospel. You take these truths away, you explain these away, which many so-called churches have, you omit these, and you have struck the gospel at its heart. Now, did this message originate with Paul? No. He said he received it, right? It was preached to him. He received it. From who? From God. Where? From his word. Twice, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, some read this and they say, oh yeah, I know. New Testament writers wrote about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, get this. Paul's not talking about the New Testament here. He's not. 
You see, 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest epistles that was written and may have even predated all four Gospels. So when Paul is writing here and he's referring to the Scriptures, these New Testament books were not even written yet. Paul's talking about the Old Testament here. He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection being prophesied in the Old Testament. So folks, you want proof? You want proof that Jesus' death and resurrection were legit? You want proof that they were a big deal? How about reading about them 400 years before they even happened? The writers of the Old Testament prophesied of the life and the death and alluded to the resurrection of Jesus hundreds of years before it even happened. They prophesied about how he would come. The prophet Micah told of the birthplace of Jesus. Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And Isaiah also talked about the death of Jesus, right? And Isaiah 53 told us what? By his stripes were healed. 400 years before it even happened. Wow. That's some strong evidence, isn't it? I'll never forget shortly after I became a Christian, when I discovered this truth, I began to read through these messianic prophecies and I was overwhelmed by the amount of these prophecies and reading them with New Testament eyes, I saw how they clearly showed and, and, and prophesied of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection hundreds of years before it even happened. It was amazing. So you have the testimony of Scripture, not just any Scripture, the testimony of the prophets and kings from the Old Testament, pointing to the person and work of Christ hundreds of years before he came. But not only that, that'd be good enough, wouldn't it? No, you've got to go on. Evidence number three, you have the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now this is huge right here. Look at verse five through seven. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Like I said earlier, during a, a trial in, in, in a courtroom, there is nothing more convincing to the jury and more damaging to the defense than eyewitness testimony, especially if there are more than one and they are intelligent competent, sound in mind, and ethical. In this passage, Paul appeals to hundreds, hundreds of eyewitnesses. Let's take a look at these. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, by the way. So he appeared to Peter. Think about Peter for a moment. In the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Peter was in a bad way, wasn't he? He was having a difficult time. We're, we're told in the scriptures that on three different occasions, he denied Christ. Now you would think, having ended his time with Jesus in that way, Peter would not be a likely candidate to conjure up a resurrection myth. When the going got tough, Peter got out of there. He denied Christ. You would also think that our Lord may have just skipped Peter over and appeared to and commissioned someone else. How amazing is it then that he appeared to Peter? The one who denied him, denied him with an oath. 
denied him angrily. If Jesus' resurrection story was a hoax, again, folks, Peter would not have been a good candidate to conjure up this story and to trump up a resurrection myth. You telling me the same Peter who when the going got tough denied Christ and left him, would then go on to give his life for him and be crucified upside down for a lie he fabricated? That's just not likely. Paul says he appeared to Peter. And Peter saw the risen Christ and that changed everything. It's great evidence, isn't it? He says he also appeared to the 12. Now we know that there was only 10 when Christ first appeared because we know that Thomas was absent for a time and Judas was absent for good. That's putting it nicely. But Paul's not being inaccurate here. He's not giving an inaccurate report. This is a a, a nickname, another name for uh, Jesus' disciples. They called him the 12. The ones that hung out with Jesus were very close to him, his 12 disciples. And technically, he did eventually appear to all 12, right? He makes a special appearance to Thomas, and he also appears to Matthias, who replaced Judas. So he appeared to his disciples. In verse 6, Paul makes another amazing statement. Look at what he says. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Can you imagine if during a trial, the prosecution had eyewitnesses lined up out the courtroom and down the, down the uh, street? My guess is, if the jury witnessed this and all the, all the uh, eyewitnesses were saying the same thing, they might say, we get it. He's guilty. There's no need to go on any longer. No need to deliberate. That's just an overwhelming amount of evidence, isn't it? And that's the evidence Paul gives us here. And notice he says here, most of whom are still alive. This, of course, is not unlikely, seeing how this book was, was, was written a little over 20 years after this happened. You know, a dead eyewitness doesn't do you much good, does it? At times, in those old courtroom dramas like Perry Mason and in the newer Law and Order, you'll you'll have corrupt people trying to kill off eyewitnesses because they know how damaging their testimony can be. Paul says, you got hundreds of eyewitnesses alive and well, and you can go ask them. They'll tell you the exact same thing. Many lived to the latter half of the first century. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was one of them. He was one of the youngest of the disciples and lived to the latter half of the first century. So you had vocal eyewitnesses all throughout the first century all sharing their stories. Can you imagine living in that time and hearing their testimony? How many of y'all like watching the History Channel? Anybody? You like it? Okay. How many of y'all like watching the the, the World War II documentaries and, and hearing testimonies from those who were there? Can you imagine watching a, a, a good documentary on Jesus' death and resurrection. we got a lot of terrible ones that, that air this time of year on A&E and other, other networks. Can you imagine watching that and then hearing testimonies from eyewitnesses who were there? That's what they had in the first century. I was telling those in the first service, I said, I don't know about you, but I, but I want to be in their small group, wouldn't you? Be like, everybody be quiet, just let them talk. I want them to tell the story again. 
That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? They, that's what they had. Paul continues in verse 7 by mentioning the fact that Jesus also appeared to James. Now, he doesn't specify which James here, but I don't think he has to. I think it's obvious he's talking about the brother of Jesus, the brother who in John 7, 5, we're told, did not even believe his brother was who he claimed to be. The brother who, in Mark 3, tried to restrain Jesus from doing the things he was doing because he thought he was crazy. Peter, uh, James, like Peter, he would have been another unlikely candidate to fabricate a resurrection story. He was a cynic and a skeptic. Yet Jesus appeared to James, and James believed, and he became the leader of the Jerusalem church, and later referred to himself in James 1.1 as James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a transformation. So Paul mentions here in verses 5 through 7, two unlikely witnesses and hundreds of others, and he ends with the most unlikely of them all, which leads us into our fourth and final point. The final piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection in this passage is this. Evidence number four, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Here Paul gives one more unlikely eyewitness. You have Peter, the denier, James, the unbeliever, and you have Paul, the persecutor. Again, if you, if you wanted to fabricate a resurrection, these are three of the most unlikely candidates you could find. Especially Paul, he's by far the least likely of any. He hated Christ and wanted to see any and every one of his followers suffer. And he knew this about himself. He referred to himself as the least of the apostles. In verse 8, he refers to himself as one untimely born. Now, folks, let me tell you, that's a nice way of putting that in the translation. This is an extremely harsh way to refer to yourself. The word translated untimely born is another way of saying miscarriage or abortion. Paul is saying, I am the miscarriage. I am the abortion. I don't deserve to live. I'm the lowliest of people because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted God's people, but look at what he says then in verse 10, and this is true of all of us. You ought to mark this. Keep it on you. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So Paul says here, I was a dead and vile and worthless piece of human garbage because I persecuted the church. But though that's the case, Jesus appeared to me and he saved me and he made me his apostle. And now, get this, now Paul says, with the zeal I used to have, 
when I persecuted God's people, I now labor with a reckless passion alongside of the rest of the disciples and with an unmatched zeal for the cause of Christ. He says, we preach Christ to you and you believe. Wow. What a transformation. What wonderful evidence we have right here from these eyewitnesses. These guys had seen the risen Christ. They had made him known and they laid their life down for this message. And as a result, God blessed this work. And through them, through Peter, through James, through Paul and through others, many have come to know him. I want to end this morning by asking you just for a moment, just to look down at your outline, look back over this evidence that we've discussed of Christ's resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And first and foremost, if you came in here this morning skeptical that Christ has been raised, my prayer for you today is that the Spirit of God would do a great work in your heart and life this very morning and would convince you by this evidence that He has been raised. That you would leave here convinced today, but not only that, that you would leave here changed today. That you would, that you would in light of these truths, you would Give your life over to the Lord. Make Him your Lord and trust in Him for salvation. That's, that's one of my prayers for, for, for those of y'all in here who came in like a Peter or came in like a, a James or a Paul. And I also want to end our time this morning especially focusing in on these unlikely witnesses. And I want you to, to consider once again whom God uses for His purposes. We've been reminded once again in, in this passage this morning that God is in the business of taking those, get this, who deny him, those who are cynical and skeptical of him, and even those who are adamantly opposed to him and he delights in taking those people and transforming them and using them for his purposes. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, God could never do anything with me. Maybe you're thinking, Graham, you you just don't know how sinful I am. You you don't know all the awful things that I've done. You're right, I don't. But you know what? I know this. I know the God I serve, the one true God of the Bible. Scripture tells me, he shows me by example over and over again that he delights in taking a broken down, fallen and disgusting life and redeeming it and restoring it and using it for that person's joy and for his own glory. That's our God. That's what he does. This is what God delights in doing. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, I'm too terrible. I've done too many horrible things. There's no way God will ever forgive me and use me. I want you to hear this. And I know this to be true from the scriptures. You are the exact type of person that God delights in using. And if you would see your sinfulness and your need of a Savior, and you would turn from that sin, confess that sin, turn your life over to the Lord Jesus, make Him your Lord, trust in Him for your salvation. You, like Peter, like James, like Paul, like so many others after them, can be forever changed. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would right here, right now, today. Let's pray.